Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, I'm super excited because I'm speaking with Dr. David Roberts, a clinical veterinarian at SANCOB, the Southern African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds. I had the pleasure of interning at SANCOB during college, and it was really this experience that encouraged me to become a veterinarian, so I can truly attest to how incredible this organization is. So without further ado, hi, Dr. Roberts. Thanks for being on Aquadox. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you today about the penguins because I absolutely loved my time working at SANCOB in Cape Town, and it's really what encouraged me to go to veterinary school and study aquatic veterinary medicine. So let's just jump right into this. To start, can you share with our listeners what led you to where you are today? Yes, I I studied veterinary medicine in South Africa and I qualified in 2012 with the goal of getting into conservation in any way that I could. So I started off just being really involved with all the the wildlife vets work that I could get my hands on. So I did a master's degree in wildebeest. So it was in the anatomy of the wildebeest. I worked on a whole lot of field research in giraffes as well, looking at their anatomy and physiology, and then went into production animals a little bit during my master's degree. And then try to find whatever conservation jobs I could and worked in Namibia for a while, one year on big cats. So we was part of a big cat conservation program there, working on leopards and lions and cheetahs, which was good fun. And after that, this opportunity came up. So I just finished my master's and I was looking for something to do and I'd never worked with birds before. And Tancob was an amazing opportunity because I could do meaningful conservation work but also run a clinic and do some practical everyday veterinary stuff as well. Wow. Yeah. Studied wildebeest, worked with lions, got into penguins. Interesting trajectory. Now that you're at SANCOG, can you highlight to our listeners just a general overview of what is SANCOG? All right. So SANCOG stands for the Southern African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds. And we're a nonprofit organization. We're almost entirely donor-funded. And we're centered around two rehabilitation centers. There's one in Cape Town and one in Port Elizabeth. And we work on the towards the conservation of all seabirds. The most common patients are African penguins, the only penguin species that occurs in Africa. We're centered around the rehabilitation centers, but we branch out to a whole lot more stuff as well. We do conservation in the fields with field rangers that work in the colonies where these seabirds occur naturally. We do applied research on the conservation of these birds in the wild, advocacy work, um, looking at the things that affect them in the wild and, and how to prevent those things which are causing problems to the wild populations. And then back at Sankob, we also have an environmental education program. We have our veterinary hospital. And so we're really doing whatever we can to assist the conservation of seabirds. That's amazing. There's so much we're going to get into here. So you're treating African penguins, which might sound surprising to some of our listeners who may think that penguins live only in Antarctica. So can you talk a bit more about where penguins live? So penguins all occur mostly in the Southern Hemisphere. There are a few equatorial penguins to get something in Hawaii, but most of them are south of the, the southern continents. So between Antarctica and, and Africa, between Antarctica and South America, and Australia and New Zealand. 
and on those small islands that are in the Southern Ocean. That's where, where most of them live. We've got the African penguin, which he thinks very special, and they just occur on the African coast and the islands just off Africa. Yeah, I think it's interesting because a lot of people don't recognize that only a small subset, like five-ish species, live actually on the Antarctic subcontinent. And most of the 18 species are actually much more dispersed in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, you can go to Y and see penguins. It's crazy. <laughs> it's true. Great. So you you treat African penguins, you also treat other coastal seabirds as well. What are some of the main things that you're going to be treating these animals for? Right. So from the veterinary side, I see a lot of patients that come in mainly with injuries. So a lot of my surgical work is looking at injuries and those are most usually caused by predators. Four most important predators of African penguins are Cape fur seals and sharks, including great white shark, but they also maybe get injured for, for other reasons. Of course, these are wild animals. When they come in with an injury, we don't really always know what happened. We can make a best guess and have a look at the bite marks and say, this is more likely to be a seal. These are typical shark bites, but they could be injured by uh, collisions with boats or pollution, or they sometimes get hit by cars because they're running around in the roads, or attacked by the other predators, land-based predators like caracals. Um, occasionally, we've had a leopard attack penguins. And so th those are the injuries. And that's what I spend a lot of the surgical time doing, sort of stabilizing those patients, treating open wounds, very often old wounds because they're wild animals. They, they don't come in when it's fresh and new, and then broken bones as well. So today, I pinned the leg of a Cape cormorant, it had a broken leg. And that's, that's a lot of the time. And then we also have a lot of penguins that come in, which are undernourished. So often they're emaciated. Emaciation just really refers to, they're so skinny that it's unhealthy. And sometimes that's because there's an injury or something that stopped them being able to hunt and look for their own food. But often as well, it can just be because there's not enough food for them to find. So we treat those underweight ones. And we often have chicks as well. And the chicks might come in underweight because something's happened to the parents and therefore they haven't been fed properly. Those are our most important things. We get a few diseases, a few parasite-related things as well. Yeah, there's always something interesting. And so when you're getting these animals, are these locals that are calling you to go pick them up? Are they dropping them off? How does that work? A lot of our cases come from everyday people who've gone for a walk on the beach, walking their dog, and they find a bird that's in trouble. And a bird that's in trouble is usually one you can catch. So if somebody can pick it up and bring it into the hospital, we know there's something wrong. And then we also have penguin rangers. And the rangers are assigned to a specific penguin colony or seabird colony. And they work with the colony management authorities, those who are the nature conservation authorities that look after them. And part of their job is keeping an eye on penguins or other seabirds that may need a little bit more assistance that wouldn't survive in the wild, but could be brought to a rehabilitation center to be looked after. Very interesting. Do you think you could talk us through a case example of one of the undernourished chicks? It comes in emaciated. And then what are the steps to be able to get it to the point where it's releasable to the wild? It's a long process and it involves lots of dedicated people. So we have the animal that's in need in the wild and that gets gets picked up. Often they will be stabilized by one of our first responders. So these are volunteers who've had some training in how to handle and correctly look after a bird for a short amount of time, box it and transport it and make sure it's not stressed. And then we arrange for transport and through through some method, often with our volunteer drivers, bird gets to Sangob and that's where it gets a check, usually by the veterinary staff or the rehabilitation staff who do a full top-to-toe check on the animal. They figure out exactly as far as possible what's wrong with it, what sort of treatment and care it needs. If it needs veterinary care, then we're going to ICU. If it's, say, it's just a small trick that needs better nutrition or just looking after because something's happened to the parents and it needs to be hand-reared, then we'll go to our chick-rearing facility. 
And there they get looked after. And as soon as they're finished with the ICU veterinary treatments or the case of the chicks, they're, they're old enough to start swimming, then they move into our rehabilitation pens. And there our rehabilitation team takes them through a few steps to make sure that they're ready for release back into the wild. And the first is just getting the nutrition right, making sure that they're fed as well as hydrated uh, often enough and that they increase the body weight. We want a good enough body weight for an African penguin to have a good chance to survival in the wild. So we want them more than about 2.8 kilograms when we release them. The chicks can be about 2.6 kilograms when we release them. And they also need to be able to swim. It's a very important part of penguin behavior. They can't swim, they can't catch fish, and they need their feathers to be waterproof enough for them to go swimming for a long time to, to go and catch fish. So to understand that better, penguins have a, like a duck, a layer of waterproof feathers over their body. So they can jump in the sea and their skin doesn't get wet. So the waterproof layer is like a dry suit over the top or an anorak keeps them dry. Then they've got downy feathers underneath. That's a bit like a jersey. So if there's any problem with the, the waterproof layer of feathers then the jersey, the down underneath can get soaked and then they um, won't be able to maintain their body temperature when they're swimming. So the waterproofing and their swimming ability is essential. Their body weight's essential. And then finally, if those are, are good, we do a final veterinary check. We take some, um, draw some blood samples and we check those one more time before they're released. And if those, all those boxes are ticked, then they can go back out into the wild. And I know that could take upwards of weeks to months for some of these individuals. Yes, that's right. Even if we get a bird maybe just got a little fish hook in, in his skin, and that comes out, the wound heals in two or three days. Just to make sure that everything else is right can take about two or three weeks. is the quickest turnaround we've got. But usually it takes, say, on average a month before they get into the rehab process, and then another three weeks to make sure they get through the rehab process. And of course, that will take longer if they need to put on weight or if they have any problems that still need to be addressed while they're improving. The chicks are probably some of the cutest animals I've ever worked with. And then that's a problem. The chicks are so adorable, but we can't love them because if you love them and cuddle them and talk to them, then they'll get tame. And we really want to keep them as wild animals. So everybody who works at Sankov is constantly reminded, you can't cuddle the chicks and you can't tickle them behind their ears or, or even talk to them. You have to ignore them and keep them wild so that when they go back into the wild, they don't associate people with love. I'm really happy you just mentioned that because I think that's such an important part of the process when you're dealing with rehabilitation animals. So I know that oftentimes when I see the name Sankob in the media, it's sometimes referenced with respect to oil spills. Can you just talk about that process of how you and your team are able to help respond to help recover those birds from the spills and what that looks like? Yes, it's a very important part of Sankob's work is responding to oil spills, but also being part of the preparedness before the oil spills happen. And that's where we've had a lot of success recently. Say, for example, 20, 30 years ago, there were far more random oilings of penguins and other seabirds where they'd be picked up with oil on them, unable to survive in the wild because the oil breaks down that waterproof layer on their feathers and would need human intervention to wash them and rehabilitate and get them back. And that's really what Sankob was famous for because he did a lot of it. And nowadays, because of really improve environmental laws in South Africa and uh, throughout the world, especially the, the shipping laws, people are less likely to illegally dump oil from ships, to clean out bilge tanks and things like that before they come into harbor. And that's really made a big difference to reducing the amount of oiling that happens in the wild. And so the oiling that we see is occasional random oiling, but far less in the future. So maybe we see about a thousand penguins at Sankob in a year and if there are four of them that are randomly oiled, that's 
a lot. So big improvement there through advocacy, prevention, um, and some some good laws. But what we still do is respond to big oil spills, and that's where there's been an accident of some sort, and a large number of birds will get oiled, or there's a large oil spill, and depending on where it is, the amount of oil that gets in the sea is not really correlated to the number of birds that get oiled. It all depends on weather and currents and, and where it happened. For example, not last year, the year before, so in 2019, responded to an oil spill in Algoa Bay, next very close to our Port Elizabeth center. And there were approximately 100 birds oiled then. And that was caused by ship-to-ship bunkering where one fuel tanker refuels other ships at sea, a very dangerous and, and difficult process because some valve or other wasn't closed properly. The oil got into the sea there and unfortunately is very close to major penguin breeding colonies. So had about 100 birds oiled and I was part of that response that went toward Elizabeth and uh, looked after and cleaned those birds and then finally got them released. So it's still a big part of our work and it's a lot of Sankob's work is something like that. It's it's emergency response work. So we can't plan for it. You don't know when it's going to happen, but it could happen at any point. So we have to be ready for that. And um, the rest of the time is preventing oil spills. Well, that's amazing that you're only treating maybe like four animals a year. It's That's great progress. Yeah, I and mean, the more we can prevent, the less you have to respond. And that's so much better for the wildlife in the end. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the importance of rehabilitating the animals and environments to release them, you mentioned that waterproofing is so important. And I'm aware that oil typically can mess with that. So when you're trying to clean these birds and get rid of the oil, everyone thinks of Dawn. Is that is that really how it works? You just scrub them off with some Dawn or, or what's the process there? Yes. Yeah, so, so Dawn is, is amazingly one of the best products for removing oil from birds. You have to find a product that strips the oil from the feathers, but doesn't damage the feathers. So it needs to be tough enough to really take out something that's very difficult to remove without causing permanent damage without being too toxic. So in many countries, they use Dawn dishwashing detergent. In South Africa, we can't actually get hold of it. So we have a different product, but yeah, very similar. And it's not as simple as just putting them in the dishwasher. First of all, it can be a very stressful process. So when you get an oil penguin, the important thing is treating the stress and ensure simple things from a veterinary point of view, hydration, temperature control, and stress levels and shock are treated before you even try and look at all the other things. We stabilize the birds first. You may have to give them fluids. And then we take blood samples, just checking how stable they are. We found that the washing process is incredibly stressful. So if they're not stable beforehand, they can die from a shock during the washing process. So we have a few criteria. We want them to be behaving normally. Then the washing process is a long process. It can take more than an hour to wash a bird. We're trying to keep the process as short as possible because of the stress of handling. First of all, the bird will get rubbed down with a something to emulsify the oil because often it's quite thick. Canola oil works very well. So you get the oil all nice and runny with canola oil. And then you start the washing process with hot water and whatever the, the correct detergent is. So Dawn, for example, in many countries. And that you need a very skilled handler to be able to hold the bird calmly but firmly and then start scrubbing the oil off, often with toothbrushes just to get it out of the feathers. And then after that, an essential step is to rinse all the soap out again. And there you need a nice high-pressure nozzle that won't, not too high, to bruise the skin of the bird, and you get really deep under the feathers and you rinse it until all the, the oil and soap suds come out. And you, you need skilled person washing, another skilled person handling, and really watching how those birds are behaving. If they're getting too stressed, then you have to stop, wait a few days, and then carry on with the process. But ideally, you want to get all the oil off in one 
quick, thorough wash so that you don't have to put them through that again. So very labor intensive and requires a specialized set of skills. And then the rehab starts. It can still take up to three months till you can release them again. They need to get over the stress, but they also need to get waterproof again. So all the washing that you're doing not only removes artificial or pollutant oil, but it strips their feathers of the natural oils that keep them waterproof. And then you have to slowly introduce them to swimming again, let them dry and preen and swim and dry and preen until they get those preening gland oils over their feathers again. And that provides the waterproof coating. And only when that's on and they can swim for an hour, three times a day and still have dry down underneath, can you finally release them? Long process, very detailed process, but so important. Yep. And it's through through years of experience that we've got this process right for the penguins. It's in the year 2000, probably the biggest wildlife rescue that ever happened occurred in Cape Town, the treasure oil spill. And there, over 40,000 birds were affected by oil, 20,000 were were oiled um, and and washed. So that's where a very big part of the learning process occurred. And a lot of our processes and everything we do is learned then the 2000 treasure oil spill. Yeah, I remember remember reading about that. Just seeing the extent to which the birds were involved, people were involved, you had pretty much anyone who could get their hands and just help. And you're taking over warehouses. uh, So I'm glad, glad we haven't seen anything like that of late. Yeah, could always happen at any point, so you have to be ready. Unfortunately, the number of birds is a lot less. So through many different pressures on them in the wild, there are fewer penguins now alive than there were affected by the treasure oil spill in 2000. We'll never see such a big oil spill affecting African penguins just because there aren't that many African penguins left. Mm. Well, that's sad. Unfortunately, they, there's an ocean ecosystem collapse, um, and as top predators, they really showing number decline because of all the other pressures that are affecting a lot of different species in the ocean. Wow, you've certainly taken us on an emotional roller coaster this episode, from improvements and conservation to declining populations. I want to transition, though, and ask you about some of the other work that you do with seabirds. What's different for treating seabirds compared to mammalian species? One of the things is you can't shave them. First of all, if you shave them, they won't be waterproof, and you need to wait until they've grown those feathers back before they can be released into the wild. So it might work in a, in a captive environment, but also they, they don't like having naked areas and they don't like swimming when they feel wet. So if you did do shave them, they have to wait almost an entire year for their feathers to grow back. And penguins undergo what's called a catastrophic molt, where at one time of the year, they lose all their feathers. Yeah, they don't go entirely bald, but they replace all their feathers over a short period once a year. And if you shave them soon after that molt, it's going to take another 12 months before they they molt again. And for our orthopedics cases, we do that to keep the wounds as clean as possible. But then the penguin may have to stay in captivity for up to a year. But for all the other wounds that I do, we do all the procedures without shaving. So there are feathers in my wounds all the time. And so it takes a little bit longer for the wounds to heal properly because you can't keep that perfect aseptic technique. It takes a lot longer to suture, but in the long run, it, it does help get them out sooner. A lot of my procedures also concentrate on trying to really reduce scar formation. So if there is a scar where no feathers can grow through, that can be a wet patch, it can be detrimental to them in the wild. So where with many wild animals, you get a scar as a wild animal, it doesn't really matter. Here we're trying to really cut down scars. We've done some tummy tuck procedures where there's been a scar, so plastic surgery, you know, scar removal type things, which is which is quite fun because it's good for the media. They love hearing that, that we're doing scar removals and plastic surgery. <laughs> 
they've worked really well and you get this much smaller wet patch at the end of that. The other thing is veins. Penguins don't have veins you can see. So as a vet, that's a great challenge. Steep learning curve, trying to know where the veins are and be able to raise them and put in an intravenous catheter without being able to see them. So that takes a long time, but we, after a lot of practicing, I can now at least find a jugular and a penguin quite well. It all de- depends on your handler. If you've got a good handler, then you can do it. If you've got a terrible handler, then you can't hold the bird in the right way to find the veins. So those are the surprising things that I found difficult as penguins. The best thing about working with them is they're really tough. You think of them as cute, fluffy, little comical characters, but yeah, they're amazing. They, they recover really well. If you think about avian veterinary medicine, a lot of the time you have to work with very delicate animals. They get stressed very easily and die in your hand just from you looking at them in the wrong way. Luckily, penguins sort of evolved without land-based predators, without human predators, and therefore they're not as stressed by being around people as, as other birds are. And that really helps in a rehabilitation center because often stress is, is your biggest enemy. Anything that is stressed is immunocompromised. It doesn't heal properly. They get some secondary infection or just the stress prevents them from eating. And you've got these downward spirals that happen very quickly in rehabilitation of wild animals. Penguins are partially susceptible to that, but much less than other animals. And then they just heal and they tough and they... You can release them with one foot and they'll live and breed and raise chicks successfully. Fine with one eye, as long as their flippers work and they've got a beak that they can catch fish with. It's amazing what I see from the wild. They'll come in with one leg and they've, they've been attacked by a shark and it's bitten their leg off and they haven't bled to death and they're perfectly healed and they'll come in for something else. So really amazing, tough characters that you don't expect from a cute, cuddly penguin. Great patience. They're, they're a lot to handle, though. I attest to what you said about having a good handler. Yes, let nobody say that it's easy to, to hold on to penguin. And it depends on the species. Some of the really big ones in Antarctica are easier to handle because they really have no fear of people and they don't really mind it if you work with them. But there are other species, the little feisty ones and African penguins, particularly that you don't want to go and pick them up unless you know what you're doing because they will bite and they will twist. And you'll, I'm sure you have some scabs and scars. Oh yeah, I've got some scars. <laughs> Are there any other interesting success stories or interesting cases you've had of late that you might want to talk about or, or highlight? Yes, we've got, well, there always, always a lot. Um, and now at the moment, most of our energy is going into Cape Cormorant chicks. So we had a mass abandonment of Cape Cormorant chicks on Robin Island and another island close by Jutton Island, where the parents just left chicks that were still in the nests and didn't come back to, to feed them. And these can be caused by, by anything from disturbance or temperature changes, strange weather, or usually migration of foodstocks. So if the fish aren't in the area and it takes too long for the parents to fly and catch fish and get back to the nests, Sometimes they're forced to, to leave the nest so that they can feed themselves. So we had close to 2,000 Cape Cormorant chicks very suddenly needed help. And they need to be rescued within 24 hours because every hour that they're unfed means that they're weaker and weaker and more and more dehydrated. So in January this year, we suddenly flooded with Cape Cormorant chicks, an unprecedented number we never dealt with before. And that's been yeah, my life since January just looking after them and yeah with together with the team so we've been working extra long hours we've got a whole lot of volunteers in we had to run this whole response with covid control as well just made it extra challenging but we close to the tail end now 
we hopefully be able to release more than a thousand of the birds. We have released quite a lot and we've got just under 700 at the center at the moment. Last weekend, we released 150 all in one day and they left Sandcob over the weekend. They go back to Robin Island where they kept an enclosure for usually two nights where they fed. And then we open that enclosure, but we do carry on feeding them. It's a soft release just to make sure that they're coping in the wild. So the gates will be open tomorrow. They can go back into the wild, but they hang around for a while still. So we have people on the island feeding and monitoring them. But still over 600 birds left in the center. So that's keeping me busy. Wow. That's a lot of birds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. As I said, usually we see about 2,000 birds in a year, 1,000 penguins, 1,000 others. And we had 2,000 birds turned up in a week. That's crazy. For for those that you had already released prior to this last 150, have you seen them just become acclimated back into the wild and able to go on with their lives? So it's been really great. We release them close to a colony of adults that are nesting or at least resting for one of the harbor arms on Robben Island. So there's several thousand adult cormorants there. And our chicks slowly integrate with them. They go swimming in the bay. Some of the chicks or now juveniles, fly out with the adults when they go feeding. A lot of them come back to get their free food, but slowly they integrate. We can't follow all the exact individuals and figure out exactly what they're doing because usually they're too far away to see. But they do have a metal long-term band on one leg and a brightly colored plastic band on the other leg. So we, when we see a bird, we can have a look and see how long he's been hanging around the enclosure. But there's still, there's still a lot that definitely turn up when you open the gates and they will be there for a while. Naturally, they, they're fed by their parents for quite a while after they fledge. And we have to supply that sort of that care that they would normally get from their parents. But yep, they're going swimming in the sea and uh, doing quite well. That's amazing. Are there any hypotheses as to why this year, all of a sudden, all of these adults decided to stop caring for their young? It's something that's, that has been recorded in the past. But in those recordings or those instances, it's usually been much smaller chicks or eggs that were abandoned. Here, it was a very large number and much older chicks. And it's probably because of a variety of reasons. There was some warm weather. It wasn't very unusual for that time of year. Most importantly, the fish wasn't around. So it's a consequence of a lot of human influences on the ocean. But yeah, as soon as the, the big schools of pelagic fish, the sardines and anchovies, which they eat, move too far away from the colonies that the parents have to leave. Otherwise, they've got nothing to eat. And that's, that is affected by overfishing and unsustainable fishing practices. There's just less fish out there, less robust an ecosystem to support a, a big colony of predators. Well, it all links back to you know what you said at the beginning. A lot of what you're doing is the primary medical care, but you're also really involved in all these conservation principles and, and everything else to make sure that the environment is sustainable and going on the way it should be. Yeah. So... I mean, my job ranges from sitting down and, and doing surgery. So today I, I was putting pins into a cormorant's broken leg all the way through to all those things that one has to manage when you're running a veterinary practice from procurement and making sure that the soap doesn't run out to advising on the, the rehabilitation, also the care of our permanent resident birds. We've got a few that kept at Sandcob um, long-term. And then the, the conservation, which I, I really love. Um, so consulting with the conservation authorities on everything from disease to management of some of the bigger problems. I'm not an ecologist. And so Sandcob does, does have our own ecologists and, and zoologists 
who really get to grips with the ecosystem and the ecosystem pressures and things like climate change and overfishing and things like that. But it's always great to be able to be involved in, in those discussions, lend a, a veterinary point of view to those things like disease control can also get very important. Wow. You get to do everything. That's, that's so cool. It's amazing. Yeah. And, it, yeah, and it's just a, a good example of what really is out there for vets to, to do. No need to think that if you can't spare cats, there's nothing for you to do. <laughs> I think, yeah, everything from starfish to penguins is another, another option out there. Well, this has been great. Before I let you go, though, you've mentioned that Sancom is predominantly run on donations and, and volunteers for our listeners who either want to get involved and come down and visit you and work with you or make a monetary donation. What are some places that they can go to find out more information? The easiest is to look us up on our website, which is www.sancob.co.za. Uh, Sancob is spelled with two Cs. Or find our social media pages on Instagram and on Facebook mainly. There's some YouTube videos as well. But Facebook is definitely the most well-updated platform. And you can find Sankob Save Seabirds or just Sankob on Facebook and follow us there. We've got pages for both our Western Cape and Eastern Cape branches. And there people can see exactly what's going on, see some nice stories and follow what we're up to. For volunteers, best to have a look at our webpage because there we've got more information on what people can do to get involved. And that's everything from if you're in Cape Town, becoming a first responder and rescuing birds on the beach to spending time at our rehabilitation center. And everybody starts off with the basic jobs and then you build your way up to, to being able to work with birds. You start preparing food or, or doing cleaning, lots of laundry that needs to happen. And then you start working with the birds, handling them, and later feeding. Um, we also have an internship program. The interns usually come from six months and there they, they also work in ICU and a bit more with the vet team. But that does take a little bit more veterinary training. Any vets or, or veterinary students who want to get involved, we have a veterinary experience program. And there you can spend usually two weeks if you're in your final year of, of veterinary studies or if you're already qualified, spend two weeks with a veterinary team. And there we can go through whatever's happening at the time. There's, there's never a dull moment. So you don't have to worry about that. So anyone who's interested and enthusiastic and willing to to lend a hand at the same time definitely must try and get to south africa as soon as you can and, and come and see what you're up to and we'll definitely link to those as well like as i've mentioned earlier in this episode i had the pleasure of volunteering at sandcob years ago and it's it's truly an incredible experience as a volunteer super hands-on you learn a lot but also just the organization as a whole. They do such great work and the conservation, as you've heard today, really remarkable. And also, you know, you're in South Africa. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> you can't really go wrong. Yes, we've got a beautiful view of Table Mountain. And in Port Elizabeth, the rehabilitation center is in the middle of a nature reserve. So it's really another great place to visit. And Yeah, it's a win-win for everyone. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Well, thank you very much for having me. And yeah, great, great to be able to share some of our stories and, and enthusiasm with a different audience. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. But before we close, I have a special surprise for those of you still listening. And if you weren't sure what that was, that was the adorable sounds of penguin chicks from Sankob. Thanks to Dr. David Roberts for being on the show this week, and thanks for sending in that sound clip. And of course, thanks to all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra moment, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. I'm Michelle Greenfield, 
stay healthy, stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.